Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, there have been many books written about courage. About cowardice, however, there's only been one. The author of this lone book on cowardice joins me today to talk about why cowardice, though much ignored, is at least equally important to understand as courage, and how the fear of the former may actually serve as a stronger motivator toward doing daring deeds. His name is Chris Walsh, and his book is Cowardice, A Brief History. Today on the show, Chris explains how a coward can be defined as someone who, because of excessive fear, fails to do what he's supposed to do, and yet how the assumptions behind this definition can be hard to pin down. We discuss why cowardice has been so condemned through time, so much so that in the military it was long considered a crime worthy of execution. We also discuss why the fear of being a coward is so tied into manliness and why that label constitutes the worst insult you can level at a man. Chris delves in the way that external checks on cowardice, the depersonalization and mechanization of warfare, and the rise of the therapeutic lens on life have diminished the moral heft of cowardice. He then argues that despite this fact and the way that cultural contempt for cowardice and a personal fear of it can lead to negative effects, it remains an important prod towards doing one's duty and a foundation of moral judgment. We enter conversation with how we can use the fear of cowardice as a positive motivator in our lives. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash cowardice. All right, Chris Walsh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've got a book out called Cowardice, a brief history, and you note in the beginning of the book that there haven't like there haven't been any books written about cowardice. Why is that, and why did you feel like you needed to do a, a deep dive into the history of cowardice? Yeah, surprisingly, I mean, it is a, I think, an extraordinarily important idea, thing, phenomenon. And last I looked, my book was the only text on the subject in the Library of Congress catalog. And there's a long history of saying, let's not talk about cowardice, going back to, to Socrates, Dante, you know, the, the man who cataloged human sin and baseness, spends very little time on cowards. In fact, he, he doesn't actually quite put them in hell. As Dante and Virgil get into the lobby of hell, Dante notices this sound and sees just hordes and hordes of ghosts, entities, people racing along, chasing a banner and, and says, who are those people to Virgil? And Virgil says, well, those are the, the cowards. Those are the neutrals, the people who never participated truly in life. And then he says, let us not speak of them. And Kierkegaard, who you know, maybe talked about cowardice more than anybody, any modern philosopher, also kind of makes short work of it and, and says that the very term, it's sort of evasive and, and it's so terrible that we try to talk about it, but we can't. And then when I was actually in the course of writing the dissertation that became the book, I got wind of a man named William Ian Miller, who had written a book about disgust, and he's written some really interesting books. And I reviewed, I wrote a review of his book, The Anatomy of Disgust, and, and then wrote and asked him, what's he working on now? And he said, cowardice. And my heart fell because there I was a graduate student and there he was, this eminent writer whom I very much admired working on my topic. But then he wound up publishing a book called The Mystery of Courage. And in it, he said he tried to write a book about cowardice, but, but cowardice gave way. That's what it always does. And so in a way, I kind of backed into the topic. I started to write about courage and then found myself intrigued by the idea of cowardice finished the dissertation, abandoned it, ran away from it for five years, and then finally went back to it. Well, yeah, I think it's interesting, like philosophers, they've 
talked about cowardice, and we'll talk about how they defined it, but they don't want to talk about it. But as you make the case in the book, cowardice often looms larger in our psyche than, than courage. Yeah, and studies have shown for among soldiers, for example, and, and the kind of quintessential place and the place that I spend the most time examining the phenomenon of cowardice is in the military context. And it's been often reported that soldiers worry much more about cowardice and about being thought cowardly than they aspire to be courageous or held up as a hero. And what ultimately motivates soldiers is that sort of fear, the fear of being cowardly and the shame that would go with it. Okay. We'll, we'll dig, we'll, I want to dig deep into that before we do, let's do, let's be Socratic and do some, let's do some definitions. How have philosophers defined cowardice throughout the ages? In fuzzy ways, I kind of run through a couple of things in, in the book that relate to, so for example, Aristotle talks about there being a kind of spectrum between excessive fear, which characterizes the coward, and excessive confidence, which characterizes somebody who's reckless. And in between, in that golden mean, is somebody who is proceeding courageously. And he talks about, but not kind of explicitly in, in the Nicomachean ethics, as I recall, that the coward is failing to do something he's supposed to be doing. And that is an element of the definitions that actually the sort of standard military definition really makes crystal clear. That is that a coward is someone who fails to do something he is supposed to do, fails to do his duty because of excessive fear. And does fear need to be present for there to be cowardice or courage, according to philosophers and according to your definition? Yes, according to my definition, definitely. And in most of the philosophers that I looked at, yeah, there's an element of fear. I mean, even to the point where they question sometimes somebody who is fearless. If somebody's not feeling fear and they do some daring feat, it's a fair question to wonder are they courageous? There are examples of soldiers who just did amazing things and did so with fear. And if they don't have fear, then it's, I guess, it's fair to question whether they needed courage to do what they were doing. And that's where I think actually courage can be a slipperier concept and cowardice is not, in part because cowardice makes clear that the, the matter of duty and the matter of fear always figure in the calculations and in our evaluation of, of conduct and of character. Making cowards even more slippery, even Aristotle observed that people who are reckless says usually are cowards. So like that's kind of weird because you think, hey, if you're reckless, then you're not cowardly. But Aristotle, says, yeah, maybe in some cases the reckless man is could also be a coward because he's maybe hiding. Yeah, he's showing his bluster to hide his fear. Yeah, it's a curious kind of loop where you can put it out on a page on a continuum. You know, the reckless on the left and the and the cowardice on the right. But they kind of meet behind in the phenomenon where we have somebody who's reckless. Maybe I think Aristotle might say because they're they're actually what they fear is being fearful or seeming fearful, and so act recklessly, causing as much damage sometimes as a as a coward might. Although the 
like Samuel Johnson notes that while those two things seem like in a way equals if opposite matters, recklessness and cowardice, rec- there's something self-checking about recklessness that, you know, if somebody is behaves recklessly, reality will get them. Somebody launches an attack or something and when they're not supposed to, they'll get shot down. Whereas the coward can keep running and spreading fear as he goes. So there's, yeah, there's curious wrinkles to trying to dissect the philosophical foundations of this stuff. And it's often very situational too, which makes it hard because like for Aristotle's definition of cowardice, it depends on the circumstances and often cases. Like what's the psychological status of the person who we're labeling cowardly or courageous right. or what, what's the situation they're in. So I think that's probably why it's so hard to pin down. Even I think Ian Miller, he wrote that he said that a unitary concept of cowardice can never be sufficiently refined to get the moral call right. So it's, it's a slippery thing. Yeah. But, yeah. but you're, you're, you have a working definition that you use throughout your book is, is a, a coward is someone who, because of excessive fear, fails to do what he is supposed to do. And that's supposed to is sort of duty bound. And we'll talk about that yep. Yep. here in a bit. But let's talk about this, like the, the state of the word cowardice today in our modern mm-hmm. world. So people talked about it some throughout history, but you show that you have this great graph of how often cowardice gets used in books. You can do this on Google. And it's been declining since about 1800. Mm-hmm. It's been just as drops. Like, what do you think is going on there? Why has there been a decline in our referencing cowardice in our moral vocabulary? I think in part that's a, a kind of, of a piece with larger trends in our language and, and thinking where we've become less moralistic in the way we judge things, more apt to understand failures as failures of conduct or character as the result of psychological ailments, medical issues, rather than sinfulness or or flaws in character. And so that's a general term, a, a general trend. And cowardice in particular, I think, has been pressed down or displaced by the horrors of modern war, the industrialization of war, you know, and, that, and war being its kind of its its quintessential home, as I said before, it's one thing to talk about cowardice when you know men are meeting in combat individually or in small groups or whatever. But when you have giant armies contending against each other from miles away or nuclear arms in play, it makes cowardice seem less relevant. And so that coupled with the growth of a more of a sort of a psychological mindset that doesn't consider that displaces or, or delays moral judgment, explain it in part. But it's also the case that the graph in this using this Google Ngram tool goes pretty steadily down from 1800 to 2001, but then it goes up. And that was I think mostly or entirely because of rhetoric after 9-11, when the terrorists were held to be cowards and the idea of cowardice came into play when we were debating what would be the best reaction to the terrorist attack. And it's something I actually, in preparation for this discussion, I Googled it because I hadn't Googled it for a while and it's kept going up. And I think actually during the Trump administration, it was a kind of a key word that came up a lot and not just relative to, to war. 
Yeah, I thought that was interesting how it started going up around 2001. And you highlight, I remember when this happened, the controversy when people, we started calling the terrorists cowards. And mm-hmm. then there was this debate, famously, this is what got Bill Maher act, his show Politically Incorrect acts. Like he's, he made the case, no, we're the, the terrorists, they weren't cowards. Like they got into a plane and like flew into it. That's not cowardly. And so again, it's, it's that slipperiness of the word. It's, it's a hard, like yeah. we know it, it carries moral weight. We want to yeah. throw it at people who we don't like. But then right. there's just like, well, was what they did cowardly or not? And it, it causes yeah. a lot of debate even still today. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, the word coward as opposed to the word cowardice has been especially, if you look at the graph, the usage of the word coward has gone way up in the past 20 years. The word cowardice, not so much. And I think that's because it's the word coward is a great insult. It's, uh, you know, the Urban Dictionary defines it as the worst insult known to man. And, but cowardice, you know, is this abstract concept, it's not so easy to throw around and requires some, some thinking, which I obviously think is worthwhile. Okay. So as you said in the book, you, you use military history to explore the cultural history of cowardice because that's where it's most salient and most visceral. Mm -hmm. And as you noted earlier, you note that if you look at letters from soldiers or speeches by military leaders, there was more of a concern for cowardice than there was for being courageous. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, soldiers would write home, especially in the civil war, they write home their family and say, I'm, I'm want to make sure that I I'm not a coward. They didn't talk about, I want to be brave. Yep. To bring glory, I just I don't want to shame my family by being a coward. So what's going on there? Why is it that this negative attribute seems more of a motivator to do things that you feel like you're supposed to do than this more positive courage? Like what is going on there? Yeah, and I think the partly we can look at sort of the evolutionary history. I mean, George Washington actually gets at it. One of his first acts when he took over the Continental Army. And he came, and I actually use this as an epigraph for the book, but he, he comes to marshal the troops and, and he's faced with a couple of cases of cowardice. And he calls it you know, the worst thing that can afflict an army because the cowardice of a single officer may prove to be the destruction of the whole army. So there's just the, the danger of the coward and how much harm they can inflict on one's own side. That helps explain why it's so condemned. And I mean, but the evidence is is just all over the place. I mean, as you said, in the Civil War, it was especially salient, maybe, in part because soldiers were serving with with men from their hometowns. Stories of their conduct would be published in local newspapers. So James McPherson talks about how common the fear of cowardice was expressed in letters. He also says that that fear is what gave them courage. And so there is a sense in which the worry about cowardice, it's kind of this sort of dark side of duty of what is going to happen to you if you don't do your duty. And that is you will be thought a coward. And the people you care about most in war, meaning the people who are your immediate comrades in arms, are going to think ill of you and not trust you. And that is something we just don't want. And human nature to not to want to be despised by those closest to us. Yeah. And if you look also, one thing that military historians have noted is that when they look at diaries or letters or interviews of like what what compelled men to fight 
And they didn't say like these sort of aspirational things for, well, for country or some ideal. It was also, usually it just got down to like, I didn't want to let the guy next to me down. Right. I didn't want them to think less of me. That's, yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. And, and again, so yeah, cowardice and from a military perspective, it was, it was, it was feared because if, if a leader showed cowardice or if soldiers started running away from battle, that could spread. They, they were aware we would call it social contagion today with our right. idea, but they understood that if, if, you, if people started running, then like it would cause everyone else, like that fear would spread and that would be disastrous. And so they really punished it hard. And since early human history and militaries, the punishment for cowardice has been harsh. Can you walk us through the history of military punishment for cowardice? Sure. Yeah, it could indeed be harsh. In ancient times, the Greeks, the Romans, you probably know the the term decimation. What it originally meant was the execution of one-tenth of a group of soldiers when that group of soldiers had behaved in, in a cowardly fashion. And that was often done by, the term is fustuarium, very dramatic, in which the head of the unit would gently touch the accused with a cudgel and then the other soldiers would then come at him and kill him. And so these soldiers who were doing the punishing were also getting a a vivid up-close experience of what could happen to them. Also, going back to ancient times, cowardly soldiers would be dressed up as women. Branding of soldiers has a long history that faded out, at least in the American context, in the Civil War. And also other kinds of humiliation, putting, there's one instance in the Civil War of a bunch of soldiers who had fled battle, being put in barrels. And one barrel said, I skedaddled. Another said, coward. Another said, deserter or something like that. And they were just required to stand and and rotate in front of their comrades in arms to be shamed. So yeah, a lot of shaming during the Civil War. If you were convicted of cowardice, oftentimes there was a report published in your local newspaper saying what you did. It's a lot of humiliation, but like the ultimate was death. Like you could get, it was an executable offense. Like you could die as, as as recent as World War II in the United States. I think there's only one person you talk about. Yeah. You can be executed for showing cowardice. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly in other countries, this happened much more. And in World War I, Great Britain executed 306 soldiers for cowardice or related offenses. The Germans and the Russians executed many, many more in World War II. And yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate penalty. It's gone for the most part out of use. And, you know, we can talk about why the Germans and the Russians and the, and the British might have been slower to relax the punishments. But it's, uh, yeah, it's the, the worst thing a soldier can do. And so is punished accordingly. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Because in the U.S., the U.S. used the threat of execution as a deterrent for cowardice. Because they, they picked that up from old world militaries. Like George Washington was trained in the British military. He brought that in when he took over the Continental Army. But as you know, there really weren't that many U.S. executions for cowardice during the Revolutionary War. In the Civil War, there were executions for cowardice in America, but oftentimes they were commuted. Like you, yep. had to, you just did hard labor. And then World War One and World War Two, the U.S. didn't execute for cowardice as much as European countries. Like, what happened there? Why is the U- why did the U.S. 
was didn't use execution for cowardice. Yeah. Why do they use it less compared to the European countries? Yeah. In a way, I mean, I think because they didn't have to, that is, well, I'm thinking of actually my dissertation advisor was Saul Bellow, the novelist, and he has a line about, this is something, when I say American, I mean uncorrected by the main history of human suffering. And, you know, the European powers were not only fighting the war, but their, you know, countries were the battlefields and they didn't have the luxury of, of being gentle with those they thought were cowardly. And in the States, I think we could be that way. And they're also, also because of, you know, American consideration for individual difference, maybe being greater than in those other places in some ways. So also another reason that cowardice was so punished was as there's the social contagion of fear, there also can invite aggression, right? People have to be trained to fire on somebody, but they find it much easier to fire on somebody whose eyes they can't see. And so somebody fleeing is actually a more inviting target than somebody who's not. And then also the the reputation for cowardice on one side can give confidence and momentum to those on the other side. And so, and obviously those are considerations for American soldiers and, and American military authorities, but I think they were even more important and pressing on the on the other side of the Atlantic and not to mention Japan and other places. So. And so the, the last person that was executed for cowardice in America, was it in World War II, the private Slovak? Right. That was, right. what was it about him? Like his case where they're like, yeah, we're going to make him the only one we're going to execute for cowardice. Yeah. yeah. And he, and he was uh, technically he was executed for desertion and he has a hard luck case in all sorts of ways. And he was also not his own best uh, witness. He wrote a defiant note about why he left. And he said, if he has to go out there again, he's going to run away again. And I think there a couple of other similar cases were given reprieves. And he was just that, that one case. There's actually quite an affecting movie about him and his case called The Execution of Private Slovic with Martin Sheehan playing the, the lead role grueling movie that was aired on TV and to great acclaim and and very widely seen in in the early 70s as America was trying to figure out how it would get out of Vietnam without feeling cowardly in the process. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Valentine's Day is coming up, and if you're looking for a gift for that special someone in your life, check out Urban Stems. Urban Stems delivers modern bouquets, unique gifts, and stylish plants next day nationwide. They make it a priority to work directly with Rainforest Alliance certified farms and believe that a hands-on approach is the best way to guarantee only the freshest flowers are picked every day. Their Valentine's Day collection is curated with romance and friendship in mind. Every bouquet is designed in-house and on-trend. Every Urban Stems delivery includes a personalized note for your recipient, thoughtfully designed packaging, and a 100% happiness guarantee. Their bouquets range in flower variety from seasonal favorites like lilies and tulips to the go-to favorites like roses. Urban Stems also offers dried bouquets for a long-lasting unique gift for Valentine's Day. Take your pick from a variety of bouquets, plants, gifts, and floral subscription options at urbanstems.com. Shop at urbanstems.com and use promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase plus free shipping. That's urbanstems.com, promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase and free shipping. 
Are you ready to establish your online presence but not sure where to start? Look no further than Squarespace. Squarespace empowers the dreamers, makers, and doers of the world by providing the tools they need to bring their creative ideas to life. On Squarespace's dynamic all-in-one platform, you can build a website, claim a domain, sell online, and market your brand. Squarespace's products combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your online presence. If you're intimidated by the idea of launching your ideas in the world, Squarespace's templates take out all the guesswork and make it seamless. And once you're out there, you can use Squarespace's analytics to gain powerful insights about your site. And if you ever have questions, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help you. I've used Squarespace over the years for one-off projects when I need to get a website up fast. Super easy, got it done in like 10 minutes. It's time to turn your dreams into reality. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com manliness and code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Let's talk about this, the idea of cowardice and courage in a military context. The, the most famous book that explores the complexity of courage and cowardice on the battlefield is a book, if you grew up in the United States, you probably read, I, don't know, I think I was in 10th grade when I read this, mm-hmm. uh, The Red Badge of Courage yep. by Stephen Crane. What insights about cowardice does Crane extract in that book? Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing book. And it actually, and it, and, it, and it is the, the book that everybody said when I was telling me when I'm writing about cowardice. Oh, you're talking about Red Badge of Courage. Yep, right. I, I am. Although the book actually never quite mentions that word, but it makes eminently clear that there is this, what Crane calls this eternal debate going on in the youth, in Henry Fleming's mind. He was 17 years old or whatever when he joins about whether he would run or whether he would prove to be someone of of traditional courage. And then he gets his red badge of courage, as you might remember, not in you know, some heroic charge, but in the course of a kind of chaotic retreat where he's trying to talk to a, a fellow Union soldier who gets agitated with him and smacks him with his rifle butt on the head. But then he's got this kind of what in World War II would be called a million-dollar wound. And then... And then when he does charge the enemy later in the book, the depiction of his charge is that it's, it's almost identical to the depiction of when he's running away from the enemy. And so Crane kind of, when he was writing the book, he called it a psychological portrait of fear. And I think that's what the book does. It just, it insists on holding at arm's length, the traditional ways of, of judging and depicting battlefield behavior that glorified it, that, that, that evaluated it in moralistic terms. And Crane is kind of not having that. He holds all that stuff at a, at a bit of a distance in the book. And we just kind of experience what this youth is experiencing and hoping for. Well, yeah, what's interesting too, you know, when he makes that, the kid makes the first retreat, he realizes that no one saw. Yeah. And, and so he starts doing, he's like, well, it wasn't cowardice. And it, I think what Crane was trying to get at there is that cowardice and courage, it's, it's, very, it's a very social virtue. Like it, needs an, it needs an audience for it to yeah. really hold moral weight. Yeah. He made his mistakes in the dark, I think, as he puts it. And so he was still a man. That's what he, that's what he thinks about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And so if anything is that dependent on social perceptions, then 
then how real is it? I think Crane wants us to consider. And he doesn't, I don't don't think he dismisses, he doesn't say cowardice doesn't exist, courage doesn't exist, but the traditional ways we think of it, and certainly the kind of naive ways that Henry Fleming ponders it, do very much get questioned in the book. And And then he wrote actually a story called The Veteran, fast forwarding 30 years later, and we get Henry Fleming as a grandfather, looking back and kind of making a joke about running away. And then actually, if I'm remembering correctly, heroically going into a barn to save some animals and 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 dying in the process. And, and Crane was certainly celebrating that act, even as his grandson was scandalized by the grandfathers, by Henry's making light of a traditional notion of cowardice. He's kind of a proto-Ernest Hemingway, kind of Ernest Hemingway got cynical about cowardice. It's like, yeah, maybe it's not really a thing. It's just just words. Yeah. Yeah. One of those abstract words that means nothing. I'm sure you talked about that when you talked about honor. Right. Yeah. Well, Shakespeare even talked about that. Sure. What is honor? The word. So you mentioned to say the character in Red Badge of Courage, when he discovered that no one saw him running away, He's like, I'm still a man. This reason my next question. Courage and cowardice is inherently tied up with manliness and unmanliness. Why is that? What's going on there? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I mean, I kind of start that inquiry by just thinking about the, the evolutionary picture again and why we might be naturally inclined to condemn fearfulness and failures of, you know, born of fearfulness in men more than in women. And one is just like men are bigger than women. And they've done studies of like 10, 10 month old kids who can, you know, tell that difference and react differently to the physical abilities of a bigger person or figure that and a smaller person. So, so there's a, without being sort of a determinist about it, evolutionarily speaking, there is a sense in which because men are on average significantly larger than women, we're more likely to judge them negatively if they show fear. And also men's lives are, are cheaper given that eggs are much rarer than, than sperm. And there are studies of primates, non-human primates, where the males are sentinels in a band and they face greater risks. And if they die, that's too bad, but better that they die than a, a precious female. So I think that has a little, it's sort of at the foundation of, of why it's a, a masculine, more associated with masculine framework, and then build on that, you know, thousands of years of culture yeah. with its own wrinkles in, in the States. You know, what I think is so fascinating about that, that you know, cowardice encourages connection to manliness and how gendered it is. I, I feel like us in the modern age, we think we're above that, like we're, we're beyond that. But it's still interesting. Whenever we want to get a dude to do something, yep. what do you, you call him a chicken? Um, and, I, <laughs> right. and, if, and if you call a woman a coward, like that doesn't have the same sting. Yep. But we know if you, if you call a, a guy a chicken, that's going to that's gonna sting. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's deep. Um, it's funny. We're, we think we're above that, but like those, there's like some vestiges of that still in our little primal brain where we yeah, know yeah. we know the things that can can needle people. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And again, and, and, you know, culture does affect that. There's an interesting study comparing Southern and Northern college students and their reactions to insult. And the, the Southern students were more likely to be, to, to react in a strong way to offenses to their honor. But yeah, but it, so, in, in, but I, but even in the North, yeah, yeah. You call a dude a chicken. And that's it. That can be a motivator. <laughs> it can be a motivator, right? Like that's the, uh, what, in Back to the Future, right? Marty McFly. Right, you right. Call him a chicken. Yeah. And like that's what God, that's what needled him. That's what got him to do something he shouldn't have done. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about uh, the intersection of cowardice and duty. Because your definition of cowardice is you don't do something out of excessive fear. And that's something you're, you're supposed to do. Militaries enforce punishments of dereliction of duty with death. But this is kind of weird because you're coercing someone to not be cowardly. So is do you kind of do you strip away the the moral heft of cowardice by telling someone you have to do this thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I, I, I talk about the the paradox of duty that it is something compulsory we feel, but it's also something that is performed voluntarily duty bound. We are, we are bound to do this duty and that if we're bound to it, then it sounds like we're being forced to. And yeah, it does apply some, some pressure. I mean, Stephen Crane in in the red badge of courage, Stephen Crane talks about Henry Fleming feeling like he's in a moving box and that box constrains him. It pushes him back and forth, right? It pushes him to the, to the front towards battle and if he's in a moving box, what he's not responsible for what he is doing. And that theme goes back a long ways. I mean, the, the idea of the Greek or these ancient phalanxes would put soldiers in groups of whatever of, I don't even know what the exact number typically would be, something like 64 soldiers in an eight by eight box. And, you know, each one of those soldiers maybe is theoretically free to do what they want, but they are in this phalanx that has a power greater than any one of them and is forcing them to go in certain places. Well, you, you also talk about like the ancient generals picked up, like we got to put the the really fearful people in the middle so right. they don't have a choice. Right. So it's like, yeah. are they actually being brave or cowardly? Right. I mean, they're not, yeah. they're not doing anything. There's no agency involved. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, that question of, does it, does that take away some of the moral heft? Yeah. I mean, I think it does it. it and, and I think one of the big critiques of cowardice and especially in the past century and a half or whatever, is that the forces constraining human beings and especially soldiers, especially soldiers at war are so great that ideas like courage and cowardice really don't mean anything. We are subject to these greater forces, modernized weaponry and tactics, industrial war. And also, you know, there's been greater understanding of human psychology where we know that some people are differently configured, right? Simply we're going to naturally be more fearful or less fearful. And so that makes us think, hmm, what really is cowardice really relevant? No, yeah, that's what Hemingway, like what he saw in World War One, and a lot of that lost generation, that's what caused them to question the whole idea of courage and cowardice. They saw it didn't matter what you did, 
you're just going to die. Right. And you had no choice. There's nothing involved. There's nothing glorious about it. You just be sitting in a trench and then just a shell hits you from two miles away. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. James Jones is great about this stuff too in, in the thin red line. Yeah. That, that's, that's something he explores as well. All right. So this paradox of duty makes cowardice even harder, particularly in the, with modern warfare where there isn't oftentimes any agency involved. You're just kind of, I mean, even you talk about like the, the threat of a nuclear annihilation. It's like, that's, you're in the box. Like there's, you can't right. escape the box. And so how do you be courageous or a coward in that situation? That's, right. it makes it even fuzzier. So another argument you make, sort of the decline in our talk about cowardice. So the changing ways of warfare made cowardice a little fuzzy to talk about. It was sort of harder to convict someone for cowardice when they might not have had a choice. There wasn't any moral action or agency or going on. But you also talk about in the past, I would say 50, 60 years, there's been what Philip Reef wrote. He said, we are living in an age where the therapeutic has triumphed. How has the triumph of the therapeutic taken some of the moral heft out of cowardice and courage? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Reef's book is really compelling kind of critique of of the phenomenon of, of the therapeutic. It's not, and especially in the modern age, although when it, when it comes to cowardice, I mean, it, it's not as if there was some time in primeval era when people didn't thought about these terms in, in totally in black and white ways. You know, the Iliad, the Old Testament, Aristotle, they all acknowledged that different people were different men, especially were differently constituted. And, you know, the Deuteronomy advises to, you know, keep the faint-hearted men at home rather than sending them to war and um, tainting the troops in that way. But those were, you know, observations that didn't have what we have now, which is a kind of officially sanctioned institutional medical vocabulary for understanding what might otherwise be understood as cowardice. And so it goes back, I trace it back to what was called nostalgia in the Civil War. And then in World War I, famously shell shock, and then battle fatigue and on to, to post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are all ways of understanding this transgressive behavior out of fear without judging it and thinking of those behaviors as cause for therapy as opposed to punishment. And I think that certainly has reduced the amount of, of contempt that we have for cowardice in some cases, and it's reduced the scope of application of the term as well. We, it, we simply don't apply it or consider applying it. Even as at the same time, we've, we've already talked about it, it's still a term that has great power and nobody, especially no man, likes to be called coward. And there is great stigma still attached to psychological terms like post-traumatic stress, right? Especially among soldiers. And soldiers generally did not want to be known as, you know, a victim of shell shock or of battle fatigue because of the undying stigma attached to those ways of, of speaking. 
So it's a complicated, I, I don't think that the therapeutic has quite triumphed. Reef's son, David Reef, is writing a book. I think it's called The Triumph of the Traumatic. And that I think is going to take a similar angle. And the book, I do talk about the excesses of the therapeutic culture, right? The fact that more soldiers applied for a sort of post-traumatic stress diagnosis and attendant benefits after the Vietnam War than actually saw combat. And now the the definition of trauma at the heart of post-traumatic stress has become so broad that one need not have experienced trauma firsthand, but just have heard about it to be to be able to lay claim to being traumatized. And you take that far enough and cowardice could be displaced completely. We can't expect anybody to do their duty, no matter the, the fear or the tiny cause for fear, because they have been traumatized or they are predisposed to fear excessively. Yeah, it is, it is, it is slip, like that, that concept creep that's happened with that word like trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's, it's interesting too, you, you see in some instances where someone who admits like, I've, I've got this, pro- I've been traumatized, they actually get like praised, right? Like you're so brave for, you know, admitting you have this problem. Yeah. So it's sort of like a, like a Nietzschean inversion of values. It's like, well, this yeah. one thing that would, you know, a hundred years ago would look down with contempt. It's like, well, this is actually a good thing. Right. And that's, that just mucks up the whole idea of cowardice and courage even more. Yeah. 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 And instead of hiding one's weakness, a hundred years ago, we thought of weakness, we exhibit it proudly even. And I mean, I, I see, you know, benefits of, of these, the, the larger trend. Certainly I think we've become more humane about a lot of things and about human difference, but it can be, you know, cowardice still has the power to, I think, motivate us in good ways. It's done untold amounts of damage on the sort of global scale when wars have been fought because of, you know, offenses to honor because of the worries about seeming cowardly. We escalated in Vietnam in part because LBJ was worried about that. Yeah. He would have, he had like, he'd had dreams where he was being called a coward. Yeah. And it, and that that was kind Um, of what it shook him. He's like, I got to keep, I got to stay in Vietnam because I can't be a coward. Yep. Right. And, and then at a smaller scale, you know, people, whatever, violent street corner acts or just the, the deep shame that some people feel about their belief that they're being cowardly can lead to violence against themselves, against others. So there's, so there's definitely reasons to be critical and, and skeptical about applying cowardice. But I don't quite want to throw out the term entirely because I think it does, if we don't have to fulfill a duty because of fear, then I don't know what kind of morality we can really have. It seems that that's a foundation to moral judgment where we can actually judge some act or, uh, based on the questions that the idea of cowardice rightly understood makes us ask, which are, what is our duty? What should we do? And why aren't we doing it? And if it's because of fear, is that fear justified or is it excessive? And I think those are good moral questions that the idea of cowardice keeps in play. Yeah. And I think you, at the end of the book, you do this, you try to explore what 
the role of cowardice in just our day-to-day life or moral lives outside of the military. And I think the, the question you're grappling with is you're, you're just talking about there is like, how do you get the benefits of the fear of cowardice? That, as you said, can compel us to do terrible things, go to war, get into fights, do immoral things. I mean, think of, I mean, that's oftentimes like, yeah, if you look at when people do something stupid, it's like, I just don't want, I didn't want them to think I was a chicken. Right. But as you said, you don't want to get rid of it completely because it is, it can be rightly understood. It can be used as a motivator to do good. So have you figured out how to get the benefits of the fear of cowardice without the downsides? I think part of it is just entirely not using the term coward about other people or about yourself in part because it's just it sheds far more heat than than light you know it's a great insult but you know insult really doesn't do much good i don't think in the world but if we contemplate the concept of cowardice and think about those questions that we've just been talking about that the concept of cowardice pushes us to ask you know given that it is it's focused on duty and fear. Okay, what is our duty? The Google engram for for duty goes down from 1800 to the present day as well, like cowardice. And so, I think it's something that we can usefully think about more than we do, and then thinking about our thinking critically about our fears. And there's a lot literature out there about how typically. I mean, and Aristotle says it, that we we fear the wrong things at the wrong time and looking at the, the fears that 2021 Americans have as opposed to what we, what we fear and what we should fear are two different things, I think. A banal example is fear of flying versus fear of getting in a car. Everybody knows, or most people know that you're far more likely to die in a, in a car accident than you are in a plane accident, but we, most most people, I think, are a little more fearful of getting in a plane. No, and I think you made this good, great case I, I liked that I thought was useful was when, when you explore why you didn't do something, whether it was you didn't quit your job, right? And like go after, because you're, and go after another job that you thought would be better, or you, you do something morally gray and, and, and questionable Oftentimes we come up with like reasons like, well, it would just, it would be too hard or it would cause problems or it would financially hurt my family. You suggest maybe you're just being a, like, you, maybe you're acting cowardly and use mm-hmm. that as a, as a brace, like kind of sort of a, a gut check yeah. to your, for yourself yeah. instead of like relying on those you know, sort of self-justifications, maybe say, well, maybe I was being cowardly and what can I do to change that? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and partly given what we were talking about, the, the social nature of, of the, this phenomenon of cowardice, and for that matter of courage, the next move would be often to put yourself in a kind of phalanx um, where you can use the power of your comrades to help get you where you want to go, right? If your fears aren't going to disappear, but soldiers by banding together can do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, be more courageous or less cowardly thanks to the, the bracing company of others. And yeah, that's, that's the, my kind of self-help pitch yeah. for using cowardice to help 
get you where you think you should go. Like even Dante, Dante had Virgil the entire time he was in purgatory. Right. And Virgil was pretty much there telling him, don't be afraid. Don't be a coward. I mean, he says, uh, yeah. you, you, I like how you end this in the book, talking about how Dante saw the, the inscription over the gates of hell, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And he hesitates. And then he uh, tells Virgil, I'm, this is just really hard. I don't understand. I, this is scary. But Virgil says, you need to go through this. And Virgil tells him, here you must put all cowardice to death. And that braced Dante for this thing that he did. And he was able yeah. to get to paradise because he put cowardice to death. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's his spiritual journey. And, and I think it applies in other realms of life as well in love and friendship, asking those questions and of yourself, what should I do? Why am I afraid of doing it? Uh, can be a, can be a useful thing. Well, Chris, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? One of the things I'm especially cowardly about is social media. I think that's so brave. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to. Um, so I don't have much of a presence online, but I'm glad to respond to emails. I'm at, I'm at Boston University at cwalsh at bu.edu, c-w-a-l-s-h at bu.edu. And I've written about cowardice in sort of international affairs for the magazine Foreign Affairs and about cowardice in academia for the Times Higher Education and, and a few other things that people might be interested in looking at. And I'd be glad to, to hear from anybody. Fantastic. Well, Chris Walsh, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Really appreciate it. My guest today was Chris Walsh. He's the author of the book, Cowardice, A Brief History. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash cowardice where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Music.